If you're a veteran or military spouse of another state startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneurial experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or are looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of the bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bunker Labs branding team. Today, we're celebrating a huge accomplishment here at Bunker Labs, and that's 100 episodes in the book for the transition. I'd like to personally thank each and every one of you for tuning into this show and supporting our efforts to build the next generation of veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. I'd also like to give a special shout out to our audio engineer, CJ Hughes, who works hard behind the scenes to make this show possible and who's been with me from the very beginning. It's hard to believe it's been over two years since we started this show. And I remember like it was yesterday when we launched it in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So much has changed in our lives since then, including new businesses, friends, and for some of you, even new family members. So for today, I thought I would do something different by celebrating 100 episodes with flipping the mic and allowing myself to be interviewed by one of my closest friends, Glenn Moyer. Glenn and I attended the Naval Academy together, and he reached out to interview me for one of his MBA classes at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill earlier this summer in order to discuss my own entrepreneurial journey. As the saying goes, the path to success isn't a straight line. There's been a lot of pivots along the way, as well as bumps and bruises to get to where I am now. So I thought I'd lift the veil for everyone by sharing my story. Before you hear from Glenn and I, be sure to subscribe to the Transition Newsletter at the link in the show notes. If there's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org or message me on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman. Also, be sure to check out the official 2022 Bunker Labs Holiday Gift Guide, which features over 60 veteran or military spouse-owned businesses. You can access the guide at the link in the show notes. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, MetLife Foundation provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. My guest here, Mike Stedman. Um, but we've known each other now for about 16 years. Yep. Which is kind of crazy to think about. But uh, a friend from college, uh, not really so much a friend as, a, as a, a brother. He's definitely been an entrepreneur after his Marine Corps service, has that entrepreneurial mindset, and has had several ventures over the last, I'd say, like 10 years or so. And uh, I appreciate your time. And if you could give a little bit of a, an introduction of yourself and maybe a lead in on how uh, you came to be an entrepreneur. Absolutely. So my name is uh, Mike Stedman. I actually go by Iron Mike Stedman these days. And I'm the founder of Ironbound Boxing, a nonprofit organization based in Newark, New Jersey, that provides free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities to Newark youth and young adults. In addition to that, I also run Ironbound Media, and we are a no-fluff and high-impact brand strategy firm for veteran-owned businesses. So we teach brand strategy, uh, podcasting, and something new called category 
uh, design. And I'm also a business coach. So I work with um, elite, um, veteran-owned small business owners through uh, the Lions Pride, which is uh, elite business coaching and cohort-based business group that I'm a part of. Um, and I'm always just helping people. So uh, I view entrepreneurship as a way to create value for others. You just capture a little bit of that value. Nice. No, I appreciate that. So uh, a lot of different ventures, a lot of different avenues, and a lot of them kind of feed into each other and kind of help the other stand up. Um, can you talk a little bit about when you decided to launch your first venture and successive ones? Um, I understand the why behind it. You want to create value for others and, and help others. Um, but can you talk a little bit about what, uh, what was going on in your head and what was going on in the kind of, you know, environment you were in to, to launch the first one? Absolutely. So, um, I consider myself the accidental entrepreneur. I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. I was just a guy trying to fund a free boxing gym for Newark youth and young adults. So I live in Newark, New Jersey. Um, I'm not from Newark. I was born and raised in, in uh, Tyler, Texas. I spent my time between Bryan College Station and Tyler, Texas, uh, raised by my mom, uh, Willene Stedman. And I uh, had opportunity to go to the Naval Academy. Got introduced to the sport of boxing for the first time. Found out that I liked it and was good at it and was very passionate about it. And uh, really just loved my experience at Navy. And I was a three-time national boxing champion, two-time most valuable boxer, captain of my boxing team. And Glenn knows this, that my sophomore year, my mother suffered a hemographic stroke, um, which left her paralyzed on the left side of her body and requiring 24-hour uh, care. And so this was right in the heart of my Naval Academy journey, like really at the early stages, um, sophomore year. And I leaned heavily on boxing um, to push through that. And uh, I tell people, if it wasn't for boxing, I don't know if I would have graduated the Naval Academy because it gave me the mental toughness. It helped me build my confidence while dealing with my mom's stroke and going through one of the toughest schools, you know, in the country. Um, so really, that created a lifelong uh, bond and connection with me for the sport of boxing. Additionally, there weren't many uh, African-American midshipmen at the Naval Academy. And I saw more people that looked like me when I would go train and spar at inner city boxing gyms in, in uh, Baltimore, uh, Virginia, you know, DC, et cetera, uh, New York City. And it always bothered me that like, man, a lot of the young men and women I talked to inside these inner city gyms felt like their only option was to turn pro or go to the streets. And boxing is a poor man's sport, always has, kind of always will be. Uh, people that tend to gravitate towards a boxing gym are searching for something. They don't necessarily know what they're searching for, but they just know that they're trying to um, get better. Right. And there's something about this idea of being a champion. And it's like if you don't have a pot to piss in, you can go to the boxing gym and somehow make something of yourself. And so for us being academy uh, graduates, you know, uh, at the time I was a midshipman, but that wasn't typical. Right. So not a lot of boxers end up going to, to college. And so for us to be, you know, me being African-American midshipman at the Naval Academy. Right. My peers and I are going to graduate. We're going to serve our country as officers. We're going to have this dope um, college experience and background. And then we get out. We can go into corporate America, business school, all this other stuff, start our own businesses. And so I plant a seed in the, in the back of my head of how do I bring the best of the Naval Academy and the service academy programs in general, whether it's West Point, Air Force, et cetera, to the heart of the inner city. And so that was what originally planted the seed. 
And during my sophomore year, right after my mom had a stroke, I did an internship at a private school in Newark, New Jersey called St. Benedict's Prep, which was an all boys school at the time. They've since allowed females. but It was an all boys school for young men of color. So, uh, you know, 90 percent of the students that attended um, couldn't afford to be there. So they had to get their tuition subsidized by private donors. They reached out to the Naval Academy back in 2000. And what was that? I got there six. So like 2006, 2007, requesting black midshipmen to come to Newark and uh, teach leadership um, to their students. And so I participated in that program. I never seen a black private school before. I was like, this is pretty cool. Um, I wish I had something like this when I was growing up, although I still ended up at the Naval Academy. Um, and uh, yeah, planted the seed, graduated, deployed Afghanistan, Japan, uh, the Philippines. But while I was in Afghanistan, I read a book called My View from the Corner by Angelo Dundee that um, talked about his journey building the, the, his first gym, training Muhammad Ali. His gym was legendary, Miami Fifth Street. And that book like energized my soul. Right. I also read another book about the military, which is called Matterhorn, uh, a novel about the Vietnam War. And what was interesting about that was that book was um, talking about an experience in the military that I felt like I was still dealing with, you know, as a Afghan while I was in the middle of Afghanistan. And it let me know that the Marine Corps or military doesn't necessarily change that much. It's like a machine. And so. I was like, you know what? I'm more fired up about being like Angelo Dundee and opening up a gym than I am about staying in the military. And so I said in my mind that once I was done, you know, I would get out and I wanted to go start my own um, boxing gym. So in 2015, I relocated to Newark, New Jersey. I accepted a part-time job at St. Benedict's, not part-time, I accepted a full-time job at St. Benedict's Prep under the stipulation that I would be able to coach boxing. And the headmaster told me, that um, he was working on getting me a space to coach boxing. So we, virtual handshake over the telephone. I got my DD-214 and I left and I came to Newark and uh, there was no boxing gym for me, you know? And the job, I didn't even know what job I was gonna do at the time. He just said, you know, show up. And uh, long story short, they put me in charge of the residence hall at St. Benedict. So I lived in a giant house of uh, 70 teenage boys and I started the St. Benedict's prep boxing team. So I would train kids at my residence hall, pushing tables and chairs out the way. I tried to take them to gyms out in town, pay for their membership, but that wasn't a good business model <laughs> um, for a residential housing director. So I was like, there's got to be a better way. The city of Newark opened up a free recreation center for um, this, the kids in the community. And so I started training my kids over there. But the problem was the commute. I was limited by the number of kids I could take in my car. And uh, it was just, uh, it was on another side of, town that was pretty rough and i wanted something a little bit closer to st benedict's that would allow me to take more kids so i approached the city of newark in october of 2016 about opening a free gym in another part of town i told them it wouldn't uh, cost them anything we would cover it ourselves and i got the thumbs up and because this gym was off of st benedict's campus because even coaching at the city gym i had started to build a reputation with students that didn't go to st benedict's I wanted to create a space that was um, inviting for all the kids in the community. So I didn't want to have, you know, St. Benedict's boxing team, West side boxing team, East side boxing team. Let's all put it under one umbrella. And um, we called it Ironbound Boxing. And the gym was located in the Ironbound section of Newark. And so the moment I got the thumbs up and said, yeah, we can do it. This is your space. 
I was like, all right, I need to figure out how to fund this thing and do all that. And then that's how I became uh, an entrepreneur. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great, it's a great summary of how you got there. And really, um, you know, when I read Matterhorn, probably around the same time you did thinking about you as Lieutenant Milas, right? In the Vietnam right. War. And you feel like you're, you're in that. And I remember being a junior officer at the time in, in the Navy and reading it and thinking, wow, some things don't change. Definitely a different environment, much more comfortable to where you were in Afghanistan uh, at the time than what I was doing in the Navy. But totally understand that, that spark of, I don't know that I want to continue as part of this organization with these kind of pressures that seem like it's always going to be here, especially on the Marine Corps side and in that environment. And then, but leaning on that experience and those, uh, that education background and core values that, that you had you know, grown and embodied and wanting to do that to, to help others uh, and, and in, in the Newark area. So you kind of already touched on some of this as well, but I'd like to go a little bit further on what are, were some of the, when you, so you're going to start the Ironbound Boxing, you know, Academy or, you know, the, the, the gym. And you you talked a little bit about what are the, some of the contextual barriers are of that, like who, who your target, uh, you know, customers, if you will, are going to be some of the stuff with the city and some of your limitations you had and why you pursued into the entrepreneurial venture. Um, if you could talk a little bit more about some of those initial steps with some of those barriers that you overcome, whether it's uh, you know, the environment or if there was any kind of competitive venture that was out there uh, that you were kind of up against, that'd be good to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I've since learned a lot, right? I've been doing this since October of, like I said, October, 2016, I've grown as an entrepreneur. Um, and at the time we always think like a good idea is what makes it, but there also has to be a market for your idea, you know, and amateur boxing, I already mentioned it's a poor man's sport. So there's not a lot of money flowing in it. And I knew that I didn't want to run a paid amateur boxing gym. I want to create a safe space that kids could come for free. So one of the things too, as if I'll even go back, I knew I could do the gym in Newark. Right. If I would have went to Sunrise, Florida or some other suburban area, you know, boxing gym, I don't know. But like inner cities, boxing thrive. So I think there's always a market in the inner city for um, amateur boxing. But I got a lot of resistance when I came. A lot of people don't notice this is actually the second location. The first location, I made an announcement how, hey, we're going to do this gym. It was at another recreation center closer to St. Benedict's. And I put it on social media, start talking about it. And a lot of local people felt some kind of way. They were like, who is this Mike Stedman? You know, you've got people that have been here for, uh, you know, all their life. They've never had a gym, right? Then all of a sudden this new guy comes in, he's got a gym, what the heck? And then by the way, the city officials responsible for setting up the other gym, they were just getting that off the ground. And I'm just, we can't help it, Glenn. Certain people just add value wherever they go. So I was very much a strong presence in that gym. And so they felt some kind of way that I was doing this other one. So it got shut down. So when I got the Ironbound gym, I just did it ghost, quiet, right? Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of conflict. Number one, when you're dealing with, um, you know, uh, city programs, for whatever reason, there can still be this sense of competition, you know, because we're a nonprofit, we're doing this for free, and we built a stellar program. And then when you have people paid on staff, right? 
And people are pressing them. Why are you not doing what they're doing? Why are you not doing that? Why are you done doing that? It creates resentment. You got the locals again. Who is this Mike Stedman? Why does he get a gym? Da, 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 right. And then the other aspect of you got like corporate America um, kind of stubbing their nose at boxing because you're already in this kind of city that's perceived as violence. Now you're teaching these kids violence. Right. Um, and they just don't get it. So grant money, all that stuff was non-existent for us in the startup phase. Additionally, a lot of the nonprofit industrial complex, they kind of have the same little donors that they go to. Right. So it's not really set up for um, grassroots nonprofit organizations. Um, so you got to come out of a lot of your own funding. You know, um, a lot of successful nonprofits, they start out as like foundations and stuff by people with money already. And so going through all of that was pretty challenging. And which is why I ended up starting another venture was because in 2018, I decided that I want to do Ironbound full time. Now, at the time, we only had like $3,000 in the bank account, if that. And I was coming off a full time income. And so I came up with a new business model, teaching boxing to companies in the New York City metro area um, that would basically pay me and my trainers to come on and teach them on site companies like WeWork, Spotify, et cetera. And I would use that to cover my personal expenses while I grew the Ironbound Boxing uh, nonprofit. And that was a, I quit my job in 2018 to focus on that. And I, that was a bad idea. And I can tell you why. Well, and so to kind of recap too, while you were, when you started the first gym and you're setting it up as a nonprofit, you're still working at St. Benedict's. Yep. And uh, going to grad school. And going to grad school at the same time. So you're doing all this stuff kind of on your own. And then any of the, at that, at that early phase, before you go into the next venture in 2018, the thanks for the contextual barriers that you had within the city and the other, you know, the different people that were either um, resistant to it and, 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 and establishing too, that you knew, Hey, this is the right environment. There's a market for this, that this will work. Um, and, and with some of the experience that you already had, but can you talk a little bit before you go on to this next venture in 2018 about how you how you decided I want this to be a nonprofit and then setting that up and then where some of that initial resourcing came from. Yeah. I, um, I just at the Naval Academy, I didn't have to pay for boxing. I knew the kids I wanted to work with. I didn't want them to pay for boxing because I wanted to lower the barrier entry. I wanted to make it easy. Um, and so I just realized that I knew the kids I wanted to impact more from the local community. And you think about Newark. I mean, People, people live in Badola poverty line. Average household income is like $30,000, right? Cost of living is like 50% of that off the bat. If you're, even if you're in uh, subsidized housing, you add on groceries, you add on all this other stuff. So, I mean, am I going to make a profit charging a kid, what, $25, $50, $100? It just wasn't worth it. So it never even crossed my mind. I've never charged a kid for boxing um, to this day. It's just a personal philosophy for me. But one of the things I did was uh, I found out I was an autodidact. And so there's one thing when people force you to learn, like assign a curriculum. And it's another thing where you get to pick your own curriculum. And so I started to mold my uh, graduate education in American studies to sneak in some nonprofit stuff in there and some social enterprise. So I talked to my program director. I was getting my master's in American studies with an emphasis on public history. 
Um, and I was able to take an introduction to nonprofit management class that exposed me to kind of the literature and some of the other resources like the Foundation Center in New York City, which teaches nonprofit classes and everything. I got connected with Rutgers Transactional Lawyering Clinic, which helps nonprofits set up their 501c3, et cetera. I paid uh, like $25 to them and they helped me set up the, the infrastructure around that. Um, I connected with a police officer by the name of Pat Russo, who runs a program in New York City called uh, New York City Cops and Kids Boxing Program. And he's got three dream, three gyms spread out around New York City. Um, he gave us a $5,000 check um, to get started. And I raised about four to $5,000 just from my personal network. And then we got a lot of in-kind donations. I picked up some gloves from the Naval Academy, some headgear. Um, and my partner, uh, Gary Bloor, he had a connection with a big uh, um, Metropolitan Walters, which is a big steel kind of manufacturing company in the New York City metro area. So they built us a dope heavy bag structure. Um, and we just went grassroots. I knew I wanted the gym to be a place where when you walk in it, you know it's the Ironbound Boxing Academy. So we went heavy on graffiti custom graffiti with local Newark uh, artists, because that's what I pictured in my mind about Newark. I wanted to have that Newark look and feel. Um, and we built the gym off of that. And so that's how we got started. And then obviously, you know, um, my personal income. Yeah, no, thanks. Like That helps like paint that picture a little bit more clearly. And something you mentioned in there that I want to, before, again, pause before we're moving on to 2018, where you go into this other venture that helps feed this one. Um, you mentioned you had a partner. Um, I know that the idea and the concept and everything and a lot of the initial setup was, was you just doing this on your own time. Um, but as the, the idea starts to move forward and you're taking some of these initial steps to actually go with, the venture, with this initial venture, uh, what kind of, uh, other than the donations and, that are monetary or in-kind uh, and some of the other kind of affinity networks of people that have similar um, structures or ventures going. Um, what did your kind of partnership look like with with the others around you that were helping making decisions and, and yeah. on this venture? Yeah. So in the Marine Corps, we got to say know your uh, know your know yourself and seek self improvement. And the minute I got the thumbs up for the gym, I knew in my mind kind of what I wanted to look like. But like I wasn't a graffiti guy, right? And I also was new to the Newark boxing scene. So I recruited a guy by the name of Gary Bloor, who was running an organization called Ironbound USA that he was getting off the ground. He was teaching classes at St. Benedict's Prep, using a lot of graffiti and art. And I approached Gary about uh, partnering together uh, on this gym. Um, and so Gary and I were the ones that literally built the Ironbound Boxing Academy, along with my other partner, a guy named Keith Cologne, who was training his son at uh, the local gym. Uh, I moved to Newark and got out of the military. He was just coming out for prison um, at the same time. We connected at this local boxing gym. And um, I made a comment at the gym to all the kids and their parents that were there that, hey, if there was ever a kid that wanted to go to St. Benedict's, let me know. I work there. Da, da, da. Well, Keith was one of the only ones that followed up with me. And we were able to actually get his son in the St. Benedict's. And when this was around the same time of once, you know, I got the thumbs up for the Ironbound Boxing Academy, Keith came over with me. Gotcha. So really part of your, the net, like key employees or key partners in this that, that you 
kind of recruited and brought on, a lot of it was using those existing networks and avenues that you were already working before you even started the venture. So not only, at least my takeaway, tell me if I'm wrong here, not only did you know, okay, there's an established market, this can work here. I know my, you know, my target audience, my target, you know, customer, if you will, but you also had some uh, key relationships in place already of people that could support you in, in the execution of it as, you know, it, it doesn't sound right to say employees, but in the, the structure of this, more or less, that's the, what they could be to help you get it off the ground and execute it on a day-to-day basis. A hundred percent. And sometimes those key relationships, they might not necessarily be beneficial early on, but they compound later. And what I mean by that, I mean, your friends from the Naval Academy, you know, people you serve with in the military and stuff, the longer you're out there, you know, you know, that's why we're able to do the stuff we do now, because it was kind of like a snowball effect. So, you know, I've got those local key relationships I established, but then in terms of our funding, it really comes from the relationships I built up over the last, you know, 16 years. Yeah. Okay. Now I'll let you proceed on to 2018. So you've got a couple years under your belt with, with the, this gym set up, you've got kids going to it. You're still working at St. Benedict's and you decide I got to go all in on this and have this idea for another venture that can help feed the first one. And in turn kind of get, the word out there to a broader network, especially on the corporate side of what it is and how they can support it. So we're back to 2018 and you're starting to do some on-site training with uh, different corporations. So now you launch into that, that side of it. Yeah. I came up with a business model to teach on-site boxing classes. Everybody told me it sounded like a good idea, but don't listen to people because what is a good idea is idea that people are willing to pay for. So if you think you have a good idea, Charge someone right away because that lets you know that there's a market need and you can potentially validate the business model because businesses fail primarily for two reasons. Number one, uh, there's no market need. And number two, they run out of cash. So if you start generating revenue right out the gate, you can prevent both. So I quit my job, jumped out the parachute with no, I mean, jumped out the airplane with no parachute, liquidated my savings, did all the stuff that they tell you not to do. Um, to try to stand up this corporate boxing um, program. And uh, it was a little bit rough and I didn't get very far early on. Uh, but thankfully, I uh, landed along the way on a part-time consulting gig with WeWork around veteran entrepreneurship. I was able to connect with a channel partner by the name of Exuberancy, who hired me to teach boxing classes uh, as Ironbound under Exuberancy. So they took a lot of margin, but it got me some traction um, and got me confident teaching boxing in companies that I probably otherwise wouldn't been able to get into. So those first, I mean, I was teaching boxing classes for like, I don't know, like a hundred dollars a session. So I was making like $200 a week at first. Right. So when that consulting gig came by that part-time consulting gig, I was like, I'll take it. I didn't even know what consulting was mm-hmm. and they approached me. Um, and so I was doing that. And while I was doing that, I became a better entrepreneur. I was learning on the job, teaching these boxing classes and I use those $100 classes to get $250, $250 classes on my own, which I was able to get $1,000 classes on my own. So I was able to go from about $200 a week into about $7,500 a month, little lifestyle business, teaching boxing classes to companies. And I also recruited one of our friends, Gardier uh, Christian, 
um, to be one of my trainers. I also recruit another Marine to be one of the trainers as well. So we were running multiple classes across the city um, at any given time. And uh, but it was hard because I just wasn't, although I was still growing as an entrepreneur, one of the things I also I talk about is about how can you identify a, a strong market opportunity? And it's something that people are already kind of spending money for or something similar, but they also have to have, uh, they also have to value it. So I've already said boxing is kind of like a poor man's sport in general. And so even the best boxers in the world, it still trumps the amount of money people are making off of tech and all this other stuff. So there's like a cap. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and so you don't realize this, but you feel it, you know, because people aren't buying it necessarily like hotcakes. Right. It's not an easy sale. And there was like a market limit in terms of like what you can charge around it. Um, and so I felt like I was fighting gravity, you know, um, to keep Ironbound Boxing going. There was a lot of hustle on the corporate on the corporate side. Um, to make it all work. And then when the pandemic hit, there was no market need anymore for on-site classes. Our nonprofit got shut down because the nonprofit didn't get shut down. Our gym got shut down. And so I really had to pivot and come up with a new business model. So then I'd start doing virtual boxing classes on Zoom and whatever. Um, and although I went from $7,500 a month to about $3,500 a month doing that, I was able to keep the lights on, pay my bills, you know, and still go to work, which is good. But I'm not Billy Blanks. I don't like sweating on camera. That's not the business model I come up with. I'm very much a social person. And it wasn't feeding my soul either. So not only does there need to be a market for it, but it also needs to be something you're passionate about showing up to each and every day. And I just was not passionate about teaching virtual boxing classes. And I had started a podcast called Confessions of a Native Son, a Black Veterans Perspectives on Race, Culture, and Business. And I thought to myself, there will be brands out there that could potentially pay me to host a podcast for them. And so what did I do? I took the lessons I learned from Ironbound Boxing nonprofit, Ironbound Boxing for profit, and I spun up a new business model, uh, teaching podcasts, making podcasts for veteran-owned businesses, which we've since expanded beyond podcasts in the full contact brand strategy. No, that's, that's, a, that's a great roll-up of... Um how each of those built uh, and how they each of those fed each other. Um, so if you could, and let's go a little bit more. And I mean, definitely the, the podcasting side of it and the brand strategy side, a lot of that wasn't just built from, from what, I, what I already know and then what you've just said. A lot of that wasn't just because you knew it and you saw a market need. It was also the environment where, where we were in and that overcoming that barrier of so much of what your current, uh, your ironbound nonprofit and for-profit, it's in person. But then uh, for the last two years, there's been a lot less accessibility to, you know, again, I'll use the term customers, if you will, or your, or your market uh, in person because you have, you have to go virtual. Um, can you talk a little bit more about like, that had what that different business or different venture is and and what were some of the uh, ways that you stood that up um, from the resourcing side what were some of those barriers or opportunities that you saw from it being viable and there being a market for there and then kind of where that stands today in the mix of all the things you have 
Yeah, so I'll go back, actually. During my part-time role at WeWork, one of the things I did was I had to source a series of interviews from veteran entrepreneurs for a podcast production that WeWork was doing with a production company called Mission.org. Um, it was a 10-part series called Find Your Mission, which I was featured in one of the episodes. And so when I was at WeWork that day uh, to meet with the, to do one of the interviews, the person showed up in a backpack. And I don't know what I was expecting, you know, but uh, we went upstairs and she pulled out like, she had like a baseball cap on. She pulled out a microphone and a little handheld thing and plugged it in. And I was like, that's it. And she was like, that's it. And I was like, I'm in the wrong business. I was like, I want to be in podcasting. And the other thing I knew too was I had read over like 300 business books, podcasts, stuff, et cetera. And the majority of the content I came across was written by non-Black authors. So even if there was a book written about a Black entrepreneur, it was more about the come up. You know, I hate to say this. Uh, they call it blinding glimpses of the obvious, you know, work harder. You know what I mean? Yeah. Surround yourself with smart people. I'm like, I want to read frameworks. You know what I mean? Like, where's my Jim Collins? I'm looking for like the black Jim Collins. Right. And so I start to think to myself, well, one way I could reach more uh, diverse audiences and bring us agency was through podcasting. So I just kind of had that idea in the back of my head. and I tucked it when the pandemic hit. Right. It pushed that idea at the forefront. And so what I did was I had already been teaching myself podcasting. So I read like 10 books on podcasting. I listened to a bunch of audio courses on it. I watch YouTube videos. So in my apartment with a laptop and a microphone, I bought some podcast equipment, taught myself. And I basically just spun up what I did for Confessions of a Native Son, rebranded it around entrepreneurship and pitched the idea to a nonprofit organization uh, called Bunker Labs that I already had a relationship with because I had come through a lot of their entrepreneurial uh, programs. You know, and I also oversaw it on the WeWork side of the house. Um, and so, boom, you know, it was off to the races around that. George Floyd happened, right? The pandemic happened. So, you know, podcasting kind of blew up, you know, while everybody was kind of stuck at home. And that's what I'm saying about the market, because I didn't have to look under the table to find money, right? There were people that were actively out there trying to figure out how to set up podcasts, were interested in it, learning more. And so it was an easier kind of sell. But one of the things that I um, was thinking about, too, as I started to scale up was how do I position this in the market relative to everyone else? Because I'm not an award winning podcast agency, you know, and there are people that's their brain. That's their stick. Right. I also haven't been doing this very long. So I position myself as podcasting for veteran owned businesses. And then my business coach at the time, a guy named Bill Watkins. He gave me a heads up. He said, Mike, you get in there and start talking to these companies about their branding for the podcast. You're going to see all these gaps. And he's like, you're trained up on it. You know, branding. And he's like, you can teach them. And so as I start to do this more and more, get more clients. Right. I start to look and say, man, I think I can really own this brand strategy space for veteran owned businesses. And now podcasting can be one of our capabilities, you know. And so that's what I did. I scaled us up, went from a team of one to a team of about five, six uh, contractors um, and really just started teaching brand strategy to veteran owned businesses. And that's dog whistle branding, right? So this is an interesting thing. A lot of people don't realize this, but categories make brands, not the other way around. 
So what do I mean by that? When you think of a platform like Facebook, Facebook created social media. Everybody knows Facebook for social media. That's their category. And the you can think of this almost like a Michael Jackson. Okay. So Michael Jackson is the king of pop, right? Bar none, king of pop. You type in king of pop, Michael Jackson is going to pop up. Okay. Have you ever seen a Michael Jackson knockoff? Like a Michael Jackson impersonator? What does that make you think of? Michael Jackson. And you're just comparing him to Michael Jackson. No matter how amazing an impersonator is, they will never demand the same amount of respect and monetary compensation as the king. And so one thing that entrepreneurs don't realize is most people are Michael Jackson knockoffs in their industry. They're like the cheaper, more efficient, whatever you want to call it, Michael Jackson, right? Versus creating your own category like Mike did, creating your own style and flair with the shiny glove, the red jacket, the way you dress and all that other stuff. See, what he did was he created a category and only one he's the only one that could do it like him. So what I do and what I teach veteran-owned businesses to do is how to position themselves in their own market category. So the category for Ironbound Media is dog whistle branding, which is why you never really see me talking about Ironbound Media very much. I educate people around dog whistle branding, which is the category I created specifically for veteran-owned businesses. Which is really, I mean, looking after that niche market that's specific, it's really a bold move because you talk about, you know, Michael Jackson knockoffs. There's there's money to be made still if you're just an average uh, knockoff of somebody else because there's so many businesses out there that their whole model is, oh, there's a market for this thing. We're not the top line, one that comes up first whenever you you do the Google search for whatever uh, the category or whoever the person or the brand is, and you see all these other options and they can still be viable businesses. Um, they're just not you know, the top of the heap and still make money. But I think the, I, I can, my interpretation of why you avoid that type of thing goes back to what is the core of what drives you to be an entrepreneur and about yourself, which is you want to help people. There are specific types of people that you want to help. You want to help kids and help them grow and become educated and you know contributing citizens to society and for their own lives. And same side, when you talk about the entrepreneurship stuff that you've done, you know, for entrepreneurs or uh, Black African American owned businesses, veteran owned businesses, is you want to help people. Um, and when you see that there's a need for help, that is, uh, or gaps in what is currently out there that's what you're running towards you're you're not running towards how do i become profitable in doing this and then you try to figure it out along the way um in each of these so i mean is that is that a fair assessment it is and even think about my book black veteran entrepreneur right i'm in the space i'm going in spaces where i'm one of one as an entrepreneur okay i know there's all these dope black veteran entrepreneurs out there and i decide i want to write a book and for me I was like, what's the easiest book I can write where I can speak my truth? And how can I target an audience that doesn't get targeted very much? So I created the category of Black Veteran Entrepreneur. And that's the interesting thing about categories is once you see it, is you can't unsee it, you know? Um, and so I created it, wrote a book around it. And I literally had people tell me, oh, man, that's a terrible idea for a book name. And it let me know. I was like, I'm on to it because clearly the book is not for you, Right. And there's a whole bunch of people out there who the book is for. And so I think it's just my personality, too. I think competition is for suckers and it's very hard 
in this noisy social media, 24 hours, just boom, 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 boom. And that's why I think dog whistle branding is a solution where you're talking to one person, right? And you craft a message and a brand for that one person and you scale it, right? So I can go straight through the noise and boom, black better entrepreneur and those around the, uh, the vicinities uh, of us, you know, friends, allies, supporters, investors, um, et cetera. And so what you do is you just carve out your own little kind of market. And I think in business, there's so many new businesses getting started each and every day. And the majority of them fail because they're not thinking market first. And they don't have a process for validating whether that market exists or not. Every market I've created, I knew that there were things out there. Like I already knew there are a bunch of veteran-owned businesses out there that needed help with branding. That's why I created Dog Whistle Branding. I knew there are Black veteran entrepreneurs out there. you know. So that's why I created it. Um, and like I said, Glenn knows me. I tend to go left when everyone goes right. But that's why I think I'm so memorable because I don't fit the mold. And I think a lot of my brands that I build, they don't fit the mold either, which is their competitive advantage because that means they can stand out. Right. And, you know, definitely, definitely a, tr a, a fair and true assessment of you. But that's what makes you unique and stand out. Absolutely. And when I think about like the commonality between Ira Brown, non-profit, Ford Graph profit, Ira Brown media and dog whistle branding, the, the core thing that they all have in common is helping helping people succeed in life and being kind of a vehicle or a resource for them to do that. But when you look at what the, who some of the different people that are, that are either your, your target audience or the people that are helping you execute those ventures, it's kind of a little bit different. So if you could, you talked before about um, the, the ironbound gym side of things on the nonprofit and for-profit side. Can you talk a little bit about some of the partner partnerships in executing and the different like affinity type groups or networks that you had to stand up more of the Ironbound media um, and the podcasting side and, and dog whistle branding? You've already touched on some of the networks and groups you've tapped into like, you know, with WeWork and Bunker Labs and all that. But I know there are other Black veteran entrepreneurs that you have kind of linked up with and with dog whistle branding and ironbound media kind of overall talk about that a little bit. This is a great interview because I don't think this is the first time I articulate a lot of these thoughts. What was interesting early on was when I started ironbound boxing, I didn't know who my perfect customer was. I thought that I needed funding from corporations, all this other stuff. Right. And I had like $3,000 in the bank account at my best hustle, you know, and that's me running around talking, pitching, posting on my social, da, da, da. Then one day I look up and I get a thousand dollar donation, which was the biggest single donation I'd gotten at the time from one of my classmates from the Naval Academy who I hadn't seen in like 10 years by the name of Daniel Glenn. OK, and me and Daniel, you know, we shared like one or two classes together. Didn't really hang out that much at school. But the, the uh, email was like, Mike, love what you're doing Been watching from afar. Keep doing keep being great, brother. I was like, whoa, that's interesting. Thank you, man, so much. Then your boy, Mike Blaze, $400 donation to Ironbound, out the blue. Wow, you know, what is going on here? And I realized that my tribe was really service academy graduates, military veterans, right? Because while the message of Ironbound wasn't resonating with corporate America, because they're very much interested in 
uh, you know, stuff that sounds good, you know, hack the hood. We're going to put coding boot camps in the projects and stuff. Not like, hey, we're going to build these boxing gym. We're going to teach kids how to get courage in and outside the ring. That message wasn't resonating with traditional kind of corporate America, but it was resonating very well with veterans because honor, courage, commitment, the fact that at the service academies, we all participate in boxing. And so I shifted my focus to only targeting veterans. And guess what? Overnight, boom, our donations went from like $3,000 to 10 and 14. Now, here was the interesting part. Even when I was doing our corporate boxing around Ironbound, right, I would, my, my network was still veterans and I would network with them and say, hey, is there anybody think I could speak with or whatever? But none of them needed a, had a need for on-site boxing classes, right? But guess what they do have a need for? Branding, podcasting, et cetera. So when I got into Ironbound Media and I would talk to them, um, just like, hey, you know, you know anybody for uh, donate for Ironbound, whatever? They're absolutely, you know, they make introductions. But then now you're able to start adding value to them because they're saying, tell me more about this podcasting and stuff that you're doing. And so what in reality, there's an overlap between the Ironbound boxing donor and the Ironbound uh, media client. And going back to what you said was, I didn't even realize this, but I'm a good brand builder. Right. I had just kind of done it naturally. Right. Just threw up a logo, Ironbound Boxing, recruited my man, Drew. Shout out to Drew from the design company that rebranded our logo for us. But that logo has been seen on you know, Fox News, men's fitness, men's health, all this other stuff. And you have brands that haven't gotten that kind of visibility. And so the way I think and how I think build brands like grassroots, you know, I'm not talking about pumping a lot of money behind. I'm talking about organic brand building is my uh, niche. And I found out I was good at it. So there was that overlap um, for that. But I will tell you, this is even now that I do business coaching, right? I have certain messages and the way I speak to certain audiences. So if I have a call on Tuesday for a potential donor for Ironbound, I'm focused on the nonprofit. If I'm on with a brand strategy client, right? Depending on what they reached out to me for, right? I will gauge, you know, that we're talking and then Depending on how that conversation goes, I got those three buckets. Ironbound boxing, this is potentially ironbound media conversation, or is this person business coaching down the road? And so what I've noticed is I've just trained myself and my team. I'm not doing it by myself. I have a team of how to approach this. So we have a lot of black veteran entrepreneur coaching clients that just came out the blue. You know how I validated that business model? I just ran it by them. I was like, hey, would you be interested in uh, you know, business coaching? Yes. Another one, which you mentioned in business coaching, yes, and got compensated for it. So I knew that there was a market need um, there as well. Yeah. And if, so just kind of like a quick reset, we've got just to make sure that, you know, we're both on the same page. Whoever might be uh, keeps everything straight. Can you give a quick laydown of each of the different companies and if, how they're structured as a nonprofit, for profit, and if they're all separate, or if they're, or they're all just under one shared kind of umbrella. So, kind of like a little bit of a structure set up. And then, if you could also add in there um, what your kind of employee structure is for each of them, or if it's all under one thing. Yeah. So originally, everything started as Ironbound Boxing, the nonprofit, and then, um, and this is where a lot of organizations, entrepreneurs, get messed up, is because they try to they don't separate their accounts and everything. I stood up Ironbound Unlimited LLC, which is kind of telling when you think about it. I didn't know where my business model was headed. And Ironbound LLC was where I operated the for-profit of Ironbound Boxing from, DBA. 
Okay. When I rebranded around Ironbound Media, it was still just Ironbound Unlimited LLC. So that's where a lot of our paperwork and all that stuff comes from. But uh, after I started earning a lot of revenue, my accountant was like, you need to set up an escort. And so what did I do? I set up Ironbound Ventures. So Ironbound Ventures is the escort that oversees Ironbound Unlimited's LLC. Okay. We support our nonprofit, Ironbound Boxing. And I have conversations with my accountant about, do I set up an external brand for the different things, but it'll all go under Ironbound, uh, um, Ironbound Ventures, right? So essentially, you know, people overthink this a lot of times, but it's really just kind of like a holding company, basically. And then you become your own little internal brand manager. And so, you know, Black Veteran Entrepreneur, we're going to have a website and have a whole business around that potentially. So you'll have that. And my coaching for right now, we're still doing it under the LLC. But um, and we're also partnering with the Lions Pride, which is my coaching group. And I'll be coaching under and everything. And so I don't have to necessarily set up anything for that now. But essentially just Ironbound Ventures with Ironbound Limited LLC and Ironbound Boxing. OK, right. good. Yeah, that, that, that helps clear, thing, clear things up of how everything works together and some of the thought that goes behind. How do you set that up? Not just for the current. Uh, situation you're in, but for, for the future too. Um, it, can you talk it, a little bit? Go ahead. Yeah. It took me a time to get to this point. Cause when you first start out, people say you need to work on the business, not in the business. And you're like, man, I'm just trying to f- trade water right now. Like I need money, whatever. But this is why I appreciate business coaching is because it caught me to see at a higher level. Right. And one of the first things my business coach was like, you need to get an admin. I was like, I'm not getting the admin. I'm barely paying myself. You're talking about getting the admin. Then the pandemic hit. I applied for this grant. I didn't get it. And I had to put up or shut up. And I got an admin. I hired an admin. I got a $20,000 donation under the nonprofit the next week, simply because she was able to get someone on my calendar that was a hard to get. You know, when are you free? When are you free? When are you free? And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Okay. Did that. And then I start to see how my admin was really becoming my COO. You know, they were my advisor. They were building a machine behind the scenes so I could go do my zone of genius, which was talking to people, podcasting and stuff, et cetera. So as I start to earn more margin, I brought on another one, right? And I start to bring on people and I start to understand that like I was holding myself back, trying to do things that weren't my strength. So again, we talk back to military, know yourself and seek self-improvement. And a lot of vets, we try to pull up our strengths, our weaknesses, focus on your weaknesses. But the civilian world isn't like that. You will move extremely slow. What you want to do is comp for your weaknesses and make sure you're covered down on that. And so what I started to do is I started recruit team members and scale myself out of the work um, that I was not my zone of genius. So when I started Ironbound Media, I was the one initially editing audio, uploading audio, making podcasts. I don't do that anymore. I'm out of client delivery on that front. I come in, then I hand it off. And as I look towards the future, especially as we start doing towards business coaching, I see me um, potentially hiring or promoting one of my team members as the CEO of Ironbound Media. Now I can be a true entrepreneur. Well, I have this entity, right? Put somebody else as a CEO of Black Veteran Entrepreneur, you know, and I can still just do whatever stuff I want to do, you know? So I use business as a way to like enjoy showing up to work each and every day. Um, And that's an important part of my goal. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to talk myself out of money, but 
Um, I am more interested in creating a space I enjoy showing up to each and every day, working on projects I enjoy with people I enjoy being around more so than I am chasing profit. Yeah, no, it makes, makes total sense. And, you know, that that's an interesting lesson to learn too, because it's about building a team around you. Cause I mean, knowing you and I have a similar mindset as well. It's like, well, I can do that function. So I'm just going to do it. I can do it and it's going to be cheaper and I'll just work an hour longer so I can do it. And it covers my costs. I know it's right. I know it's my way, but then you get to the point and like you pointed out, it's like, okay, what is, as you called it zone of genius. Um, it's like, what are, what is the value that I can uniquely bring that no one else can bring to this venture? And I need to focus my time and energy on that. Where else, where are my gaps if I'm going to be focusing solely on that? And what's the appropriate level of work for a certain function to be at? And what you said about hiring the admin really helped illustrate that. And I think probably is uh, a lesson learned the hard way for a lot of entrepreneurs as well. Um, for as far as the rest of the team that you have around you, um, how do you, like how, how many people is it? And kind of how is that? Uh, structured and what do you see? How did you get to that point and where do you see it growing? You kind of alluded to some of the growth already, but how did, how did, uh, how, where are you at and how did you, how'd you get there? Yeah. So the biggest growth happened in 2019. I won a 25K grant from the Street Shares Foundation um, for Ironbound Boxing. I took a large chunk of that money and invested in business coaching. And at the time, I was just making up as I was going. I was doing part time consulting for WeWork. I was trying to scale up my corporate boxing and I'm running a nonprofit and I'm not doing any of them very well. So I uh, joined a coach a coaching group called the Lions Pride, got connected with a West Point grad by the name of Bill Watkins, who taught me how to think on a quarterly basis and how to build operating systems and how to build brands from the ground up beyond just this is a good idea, some logo and colors, more so like what are your core values? What are your bold beliefs? All this other stuff. And I used that knowledge to stand up my first board of directors for Ironbound Boxing. Um, so we have Ironbound Boxing's board of directors. I'm the president. And I have uh, consultants that I work with, two West Point grads that uh, help me cross my T's and dot my I's on the back end. Um, and so that team, give or take, and we are volunteer coaches, is probably around 10 or 12 or so. And then on the Ironbound um, Unlimited side of the house, there are about five of us, five. Um, two, of, I'm the only one that is full-time currently. Everyone else is contractors. Um, and I'm working towards getting my audio engineer uh, uh, more full-time. She's already on a retainer, but I want to get her more salaried and all that stuff. So I'm still building that stuff from the ground up. It's like a video game. You know, you get to a certain level and you're like, oh, I made it to level six. Yeah, well, I'm at like level four and it took me a while to kind of get to this point. And it was a big deal putting myself on salary because now you start to see, oh, that's what they mean with cash flow, you know, because guess what? If you're pulling money out of the business on a monthly basis consistently, you know, that means you got to have money going in. And guess what? Your overhead expenses, they go up. You start bringing on team members. And so I've really just kind of learned business just doing it. Yeah, for sure. So as far as. I'd like you to maybe go a little bit more into the decision of uh, having those people that work on your team be contractors. Uh, and then are you the only member, maybe you and your admin that are, are salaried? 
I'm How's not, that set up? Yeah, so I'm full-time salary. Um, I get paid uh, every month from Ironbound Unlimited. I don't take a salary from Ironbound uh, Boxing. Um, because, again, for me, and you think about this, once I learn how to create value out of thin air as an entrepreneur, right, it's like, can I make more money for myself and compensate myself accordingly on a for-profit than I could with a cap on a nonprofit? Um, so, like, most nonprofit organizations, I mean, especially grassroots, and we're still very much grassroots, right? What am I going to make, $40,000 a year, $35,000, maybe fifty, sixty, dollars if that? But then again, the market we're in, that's not a lot, right? Like, our, you know, we're not doing coding boot camps and we don't have a million dollars coming in from Bill and Melinda Gates. Okay. So it just, to me, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and so I can do more with the margin to make sure the gym and the kids and the coaches and stuff are taken care of when they travel and everything than I can, you know, sit in with a salary. So on the nonprofit. So um, when we bring contractors in like the consultants and stuff, those are all retainers. The person that runs our social media, that's a retainer. We just use vendors for a lot of that stuff. And we comp uh, volunteers on travel, all that other stuff. So volunteers, they're taken care of. They don't have to come out of pocket to pay for kids. We cover all that other stuff. Um, and then so on the for-profit side of the house, I'm the only one on salary. I have admins that I hired through an organization by a friend called uh, Organized Q is the name of the company, virtual assistants, but she's my COO, you know, to put... The, 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 like legitimately, she can be so much more. The whole team can because you start to see their value. Um, my audio engineer was the first person I brought with me on uh, Ironbound Media side, even before I hired an admin, the virtual assistant. Um, and she, uh, she's on retainer. At first, she wasn't on retainer. I was just paying her her project. Then I was able to put her on a more consistent monthly retainer. And one of my goals is to keep adding to that, adding to that, adding to that to get her to a livable um, wage. Um, and so you go back to the point of like, why keep people on contract? I think work is changing too, you know? Um, it goes back to that, like our why of like, I want to create a place that people enjoy showing up to work for. And so contractors give me a little bit more flexibility in a sense of they have flexibility on what they get to work on. And I think a lot of our workforce, the traditional workforce is unfulfilled because they're dedicating all this time, energy and attention to this business that may or may not be looking out for their best interest when a recession or something hits or whatever. And so when you get cut, now you're kind of hopeless and you can't do anything versus me. I'm like, work on your side projects, do whatever you got to do. I just want our clients taken care of, you know, as long as that's happening. And guess what? If you're doing something that you don't like doing, right? That's not filling you up. We can bring somebody else in and do it and get you doing the thing that you want to do. So that's the, the reason behind the contractors is because I don't want to babysit. I don't want to micromanage. I want people to own their stuff um, and add value. Um, and that's where we're at right now. Yeah, no. And that makes sense. And uh, that's more or less the answer I expected based on, you know, the type of uh, the level of compensation you can provide people with where you're at, the type of the, the way the work environment is right now and the type of work you need them to do. That all makes total sense. Uh, you didn't say this explicitly, but I'm sure you've thought about it on some degree. When you're 
growing, as you've grown and as you continue to grow, I'm sure part of your consideration has been, okay, when I get to a certain level of employees, if I have them on as full-time, the human resources requirements and benefits requirements that I'm legally required to have, um, that's and then how you process those functions and, and service that I'm sure has been part of your consideration with the contracting as well. Um, if you could maybe talk to that a little bit and the, yeah, you know, about, about the now and the, maybe even the future growth. Yeah. It's a certain level of complexity too, you know, and to be honest, right? Like that's what makes entrepreneurship no, no longer fun to a lot of people. So guys like me, I realize I'm a guerrilla entrepreneur. I love coming in at the ground level and making sausage. Right. I'm like, let's go. Let's figure it out. You start talking to founders. They're dealing with HR stuff. They're dealing with all this other stuff. And they're like, they just want their business to burn to the ground. You know, so growth is a choice, too. Right. So I can be a lot more intentional about the size and scale of our business. And I'm tying it more to people's lifestyle. You know, so I've told my team, I want us bringing in thirty thousand dollars plus a month in recurring revenue. That allows, uh, you know, people to have a livable wage, right? Um, we have margin. I want to have margin to create my own venture studio and invest in founders like you. You know, you come to me and you got a great idea. Do you know, I, don't, I want to be able to throw money and invest in you simply because I believe in you. Less about that I'm looking for ROI. And I want to have the margin to be able to do that. I call it radical generosity, right? The same thing to have, you can, you can equate that to time too having so much margin that guess what? I can take a month off and go with the nonprofit to Puerto Rico for a boxing tournament or something, right? So that's what is fueling us. Um, and again, that's just one venture. So I want to do multiple ventures. The cool thing about business coaching is it gets me in the process of doing that because now I, you know, I can scale, I can add value to companies through media and content, right? Um, to get them to the next level. But I don't know if I want that complexity. I don't know if that's me. You know, and I think, too, it's part of, uh, listen, we've been responsible for people. You know, I was responsible for people in the Marine Corps as a platoon commander. Then I go to St. Benedict's Prep, living in a giant residence hall for 70, with 70 teenage boys. You know, then you're, I'm running programs for WeWork and all this other stuff. And it's just like, I'm kind of tired of being responsible for a lot of people. Um, and so I don't know if I want that complexity. So and there's, there's businesses that are up and running profitable millions of dollars in revenue that are just contracted. Yeah, no. And it, it makes total sense of, you know, what, what your goals are, how you want to grow, what, what are your priorities? What are the risks that you do or don't want to take and how you've mitigated them? Like that thought, thought process take, makes total sense to me. So we talked a little bit about the, the structure of who you have working for you and everything and understand the structure overall of how these different entities uh, are structured together and how different decision points could lead you towards one or the other based on who you're speaking with. Uh, there's a very big component of this that is getting the name out there, having those philanthropic donors or grants come in to help feed and sustain what you have going on. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, understand the grassroots side and with the different veterans networks that you've been able to tap into to get some, some donations. But I also know that you've had some, uh, not just local, but national exposure to who you are and what, what your, your ventures are. Uh, and you've also had some of that exposure at the, 
the corporate level with some of the WeWork stuff and some of the consulting and the, and the at the time, in-person boxing coaching. But can you talk a little bit more about what some more of that brand exposure at those broad levels have done for you and what kind of uh, either corporate or local or state or federal kind of grants or funding that you've either considered or have helped kind of sustain you where you're at? One of the reasons I'm so bullish on veterans is because every single opportunity that's come my way has come from a veteran or a connection of a veteran. So, you know, we got a grant from Dick Sporting Goods Foundation. I had applied for a grant. We didn't get it. There's a Naval Academy guy that works at Dick Sporting Goods. And when he saw my stuff on LinkedIn, he said, have you talked to Dick Sporting Goods? I was like, we did. We didn't, uh, you know, get a grant. Stand by. Next thing I know, we got a grant. Right. So. Um, I use two channels and there was time where I was like, you know, for executives, there's like busyness versus effectiveness. And so everybody's all about this social media, grow your audience, grow your followers, all that other stuff. But honestly, it doesn't matter. That's why I say dog whistle branding, right? If I got 10 followers and one of them is Warren Buffett, <laughs> you know, the other one is uh, Charlie Munger, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos, right? Like all these people, my 10 Trump, your 10 billion people following you. Okay. And so I stopped hustling. I stopped posting on social and I started just sending emails and posting on LinkedIn. Now we have an Instagram that I outsourced to one of my teenagers um, that he runs. And that's where uh, people do kind of keep up with us. But essentially I was just posting on LinkedIn, writing about Ironbound and sharing stuff via email. And it just created a flywheel to where I mobilized the network. And the longer I've been doing this, the more people like you, Glenn, when you're like, Hey, have you thought about reaching out to or you do it on my behalf to one of those pages? Right. Um, and then it gets you more exposure. Um, the other thing, too, is proximity. And you think about like New York City, Silicon Valley, all these other places. You know, if someone sends you a message and say, hey, Mike, can you speak on Fox News on Monday at 9 a.m. in New York City? I live in Newark. It's a 20 minute train ride. There's a car that can come pick you up. So it's veteran. There's also proximity, okay? We were featured early in like 2017 on a local Fox News, not even national, local Fox News. They did a profile on uh, Ironbound Boxing. Guess what? The CEO of Everlast watches local Fox News. And when he saw our gym, he sent one of his reps to come meet me and tell me that they want to outfit the gym in Everlast gear. Um, and the reason I got that profile was because I was doing an interview for veterans. And the question, I was speaking on behalf of veteran entrepreneurs in New York City. And the question came from the reporter, tell us about your venture. I was like, oh, I run a free boxing gym in Newark, put out my phone, I showed her images. She was like, we want to come to it and do a piece. So I, I don't want to make this seem overly complicated, but it's like sticking to your core, activating your network, and they become your champions. And when they come across opportunities like, hey, um, I'm working with men's fitness and they want to do a profile of a veteran entrepreneur. Mike, are you interested? Hey, I just got this gig with men's health. They want to do a profile of veteran entrepreneurs. Mike, are you interested? So it's your network and your relationships. And then the further up in this game you get, the more and more I've just come to realize that the reason people get certain deals over others is that. Um, you know, their roommate, they were roommates at the Naval Academy. <laughs> like it's simple, it's simple stuff, right? But again, you got to cultivate real 
meaningful relationships with people um, and let them be your evangelists. No, that's great. And I mean, one, one other network and thing I just want to like highlight too about you personally uh, that maybe you can talk about is uh, being a Hoover Institute fellow, which is a huge deal. Um, and, you know, very, uh, very well-deserved and hard-earned and, uh, you know, personally proud of you for get, having that level of what I would define as like a, a milestone type of uh, opportunity. Um, whenever you, so two-part question here, when you talk to that group of your, your current fellows and past fellows, when, when, you, when you've gone out there, what kind of perspective or advice have you gotten from them that's helped you? And then also some more of like direct kind of uh, awareness or attention to your different ventures have come from, you know, that's not just a network of veterans. That's a network of veteran entrepreneurs, veterans that are making an impact uh, in, in a variety of different places uh, as far as being, you know, good citizens. More so is just the confidence. About being completely honest, right? Like I think when you're an entrepreneur, we always assume that there are people that are going to save you, you know, that whether it's, oh, I get this fellowship, you know, I applied for this fellowship with an organization called Echo and Green, right? And it was going to be $80,000 fellowship, medical, dental, all that other stuff. And I didn't get it. And I applied three years in a row, devastated. Guess what? I still did it anyway, you know? And for me, um, Obviously, there's great connections being associated with it, but it's more the authority piece. That's the other thing, you know, this idea that like, yo, he ain't messing around, you know, like this guy is educated. He knows what he's talking about. You know, I'm humble brag. I'll be like, Google me, you know, because I do think there is still this sentiment of um, call it racism, call it underestimated, whatever you want to call it. People expect a certain thing from certain people. And unfortunately, based on the color of your skin, the way you talk, the way you do certain things, people will put you inside a box before they even get to know you, you know? So I was in Newark and I was trying to talk to this local nonprofit that wouldn't really give me the time of day. Then she jumped on LinkedIn and saw my stuff. And then I ran into her in a coffee shop while I was wearing my little Hoover vest. And then all of a sudden the conversation kind of shifted. And so for me, it's more about, I don't know. Just building that authority. Just I'm just on this like be so good they can't ignore you tip. I call yeah. it undeniable greatness. Just let yeah. your work speak for itself. But and, and, you know we talked like very early on about um, different barriers to overcome, like contextual, and really we focused a lot of the, your answer on Newark, the market, what kind of business you were, uh, you know, what kind of venture that you're trying to stand up. We didn't really touch in as much on uh, the, the racial aspect of it. That's something that I know we we have talked about before, and under and that's kind of an understood thing. And I think as you grow beyond Newark with the areas where you have an impact or are looking for resourcing font from, is probably an area where that particular barrier has has grown a, a little bit more, maybe apparent. Like that example that you just gave to some extent too. So it's not one of the ones that you listed as a barrier yet overcome, but. You know, I think it was implied along the way, but I wanted to, I wanted to say it out loud and then give you a chance to speak to it a little bit more. So one of the things I've learned is I don't like the term privilege anymore. 
whether black privilege, white privilege, whatever you want to call it, because I think it takes agency away from the work people do. Um, and so people look at me and they say, Mike, you're privileged. You're a Naval Academy guy. You're fucking, you went to, you know, you got this fellowship at Stanford. You've got this great network. I'm like, oh, really? I read 300 some business books. You know, I was a guy making $200 a week. Right. So now I can relate when people feel some kind of way, when people assume that there's a certain level of privilege. I will also say that I still think people treat people a certain way based off their perceptions without giving them um, a fair chance. And I also think people try to put you inside of certain boxes. So as a bootstrapped, proud, bootstrapped entrepreneur, you know, I'll meet people in there. They measure success as a tech startup and a billion dollar exit. Right. Versus me, that's not my success. My success is I want to do fun things with people I enjoy being around. And small business gives me the affordability to do that, right? Like, I don't know if I can do that with a tech startup or something. Now, part of me is also like, am I talking myself out of greatness because I haven't seen it, you know? And that's what another thing that Hoover had done for me because, um, you know, there's this perception that you get out of Naval Academy, West Point, whatever, you go to elite business school. I was literally told by friends of mine that look like me that if you don't go to a top 10 business school, you're not Jack, basically. Nothing else matters. That somehow people that are going to Rutgers and everywhere else are just these bottom feeders. All right. And I just don't know where we get this kind of mentality from. It's crazy to me. Right. It's this elitism. But everyone's trying to pigeonhole you, whatever. But I thought I wasn't smart enough to go to business school. So I didn't even apply. Okay, And then yet. I was like, even if, you know, me doing boxing stuff is never going to happen. And for me to like move to Newark, start a gym my way and still end up at the Stanford to the world, you know, still end up at all these different places. Like part of me is like, man, maybe the American dream is possible, you know. Um, and that's what the fellowship did, you know, and the fact that I'm teaching business now as a business coach and stuff. So it's just very like. I don't know. You just start to build your confidence up of like what is possible. And I call it a Roger Bannister moment. So like I thought when I left the military, there was no way in hell I would ever end up at the Stanford's or the Harvard's or all these places, you know, and then you find yourself there right on your own terms because I didn't go to business school. I got a fellowship and now I've seen what it looks like to break the four minute mile. And so when I talk about tech startups, venture capital, all this other stuff, right, maybe I have this perception about things the way they are because I haven't seen the four minute mile broken yet. But when I do see it, maybe it will change how I approach things. Yeah, and I think it really, I'm almost surprised that you haven't said this yet because you say it all the time and I love it. Um, we lift as we climb. And you found those people to help lift you as you're climbing, but you've also put a huge emphasis and that's more or less the, the focus on your entrepreneurial ventures is as you're climbing, you're lifting people along with you and you're finding the people that are climbing alongside you and helping and encouraging them up and continuing to build that network. So I think that is, that's a, a lot different example or mantra that you've had when earlier on you were saying, fake it till you make it. I don't feel yeah. like I belong. I don't feel like that I'm, yeah. you know, uh, supposed when to did be. That shift? I think that was around 2017, 2018. I started really just publicly saying, you know, lift as we climb because yeah. I got tired. What's the point of being the only one at the mount? What's the point of being the only one on the mountaintop if you're the only one there? Right. It's just not fun. And so, you know, I talk to my team all the time of like, yo, when I started Ironbound Media, when I started Ironbound Boxing, I couldn't afford 
this rebranded world-class logo. This designer named Drew O'Brien, who I met at a veteran event, said, I want to help you. And he redid our, our logo, right, um, for us. He's a small business owner himself. I'm taking food off his table. He could have been using that time to work on clients and stuff. I always remember that. So when I have more margin in my business, I can be more radically generous. So that veteran that comes to me, like, I don't charge everybody. Sometimes I help people just because I believe in you, you know? And that social good, you don't even realize it, it scales because I launched the crowdfund for my book campaign. I had no idea how it was going to go, right? And I was nervous about it because I was like, I'm on the hook for like $9,500. I can't raise this money. And we raised it in like a day. And so it was all this goodwill I had built up from podcasting, helping people, all this other stuff that kind of lifts as we climb mentality. But you're right. That is the core thing for me now is like, dude, how many more people can I bring up with me along the way? Yeah. And it's, it's a really powerful message and it, it is very much like across all your ventures. That is a common theme. Uh, it's like, it's a, I think I view it as like your, one of your personal mantras that, that you uh, have become like an exemplar for that type of thing for the, for the kids that you coach, for the people that see around you. And I think the, co- the concept of an exemplar, whether it's in m- movies or in public figures or in business or education or wherever is a, is a really important concept for um, especially people that would be categorized as other or shouldn't fit in or, or have that banister mentality of four minute mile can't be done or whatever. It's like when you don't see people that are, that look like you, that are from your background, that have, you know, whatever category that or box or someone would put you in when you don't see somebody that is similar to you in those roles, it can tell you, no, this can't happen. Um, And that's something that you, from, from knowing you and from what you've spoken about, you've sought out who are those uh, exemplars and who are those partners that I can make and help me climb and get to where I want and setting that example for those that are behind you that you're pulling up with you. So I think that's really powerful and kind of gets to, uh, I could talk to you forever uh, on any number of things and especially on this, but I kind of want to start to close out this discussion with two questions. Um, One, what's the kind of current state of all the different ventures? And then the more important one to me is how do you define success for your, not just yourself, but each of the ventures? Uh, And then would you say that you've been successful in each of those and and kind of, you know, how things are currently say, how, how would you define success? Are you successful now? And then, you know, you can touch some on the future if you'd like. So I think um, one of the challenges is as you become a better entrepreneur, stuff starts sticking on the wall. So at first you're throwing a bunch of stuff and it's just falling off. And all of a sudden it sticks, it sticks, it sticks. And so now you got to make a decision. How much further do you want to move this, move that? I've been able to get both businesses to six figures, nonprofit um, and Ironbound Media. Uh, I want to get to a million dollars for Ironbound Media. That'll give me the margin that I talked about to be radically generous with my little venture studio. But right now we'll probably do 200K this year um, in revenue, over 200K. For the nonprofit, we average about 100,000 um, a year um, revenue. So we'll probably get 
hundred, hundred fifty in donations. Um, and they're all very, we're good. You know, the thing is the, the, I spend a lot of time in deep work now instead of the day-to-day hustle because of, I have a team, you know, so I'm building systems and stuff, right? So I can focus in my zone of genius. They'll do the high leverage task that will get us to that next level. Um, and I'm more focused now. So there's that. Um, how do I define success? I define success a couple of things. And I wanted to touch on this, but I forgot to. I never saw black business owners looking like me. Right. And, you know, when you come out of the military, what we're told in the military, clean shaven, you know, whatever, strict haircut. I, I'm, I, I tease our kids with this, too. But, you know, the sleeve tattoos and all that other stuff that somehow you're going to be working at Chipotle and like, you know, you can't get a job. You can't do all this other stuff. I've had that shattered so many times. Like, it doesn't matter. You know, just be good at what you do. Let your work speak for itself, et cetera. And I think there's a certain image of what like a business person looks like. And it doesn't look like me. And it doesn't look like my kids in Newark. And I think that's also why there's such a disconnect of who we choose to highlight and stuff. And so I take pride in the fact that I can rock my, I think I'm wearing a trucker hat today, got my little beard, you know, and can still swing with the best of them. Um, and so for me, it's about showing up my full authentic self, working with clients that want me. Um, if you want me to be, a, a, if you want me to fit inside your box, I'm probably not the one for you. Um, and so, you know, I just don't, I have to say this, like, I just don't compete anymore. You know, like walking in a room, being one-on-one isn't winning for me, all right? Walking in a room, being one-of-one and having agency, like they made me feel at Hoover. They had my little name tag, Iron Mike Stedman. I went there with my beard and mohawk fade. I could be my full self. It was amazing. The first time I went to Stanford for another program, I shaved my head because everyone told me, don't go to Stanford with a mohawk fade. And I just think that that's flawed thinking. Um, And so it's important for me to be able to you know, show up my authentic self, work with people that accept me for my authentic self, be in good health. So taking care of my mind, body, you know, because what's the point of winning that business is when I'm feeling it like life and everything else. And so really just trying to enjoy each and every day. That's winning. How do I enjoy each and every day? I love it. What about uh, the future? You've talked a little bit about throughout in each question, but um, not just future status of you talked a little bit about the business side of what you'd like to get to. Um, but what does future success look like to you more in the same areas where you already are, or are there, uh, additional what's, what's the next four minute mile? Is there a three minute mile? So I want to read, write an ideal world. What I do for a living is read, write and podcast. Right. And I run my little ventures. Um, potentially I could start a fund for black veteran entrepreneurs. Um, and invest in black veteran entrepreneurs through venture capital and kind of private equity and also my knowledge and skills to help them go from, you know, zero to one. I have a mentor that said every black veteran entrepreneur that's at a million dollars has a potential to be a $10 million business. And a $10 million business has to be the potential to be a hundred million dollar business. And that's what I was saying about unlocking that value for them. I think that could be dope. Um, I think it could be dope um, just investing in other veterans and minorities just in general, period, like yourself. Um, and really getting good at this business coaching. That's what I'm excited about next. 
because I just I'd never seen black business coaches. I didn't know a lot of them. I didn't even know what business coaching was. I just knew I needed help. <laughs> and I said, help. And somebody came running. And now I'm sold on business coaching. Like I have two business coaches. That's how sold I am on it. Um, and it's just been transformational. And so being able to take that and apply it to the communities I care about uh, the most, which is the veteran community, the Newark community, helping other minorities. And so I think I have a strong potential to really create a lot of impact as a, you know, as a business coach and running my ventures. No, that's great. And uh, okay, for real, last question on, on this side. What for any entrepreneurs out there across any category, what kind of advice would you give them, whether that's lessons you learned the hard way or important things that you got right uh, or that you did? And you've talked a lot, of, a lot of those along the way, but if you could kind of summarize like what advice you'd give to an entrepreneur based on your experiences, good, bad, and otherwise. Sales is king, right? And sales validates that there's a market need for your business, especially if you're a minority, right? Like the reality of it is venture capital, they don't invest in small businesses like that, right? A lot of us don't have that friends and family round. And so my favorite type of venture capital is paying customers, right? And so what you want to do is you want to focus on 10 customers, get 10 customers, forget all the planning, all the whiteboarding, put some on a Google doc and go validate and talk to humans. Right. The more people you talk to, you have a better understanding of your unique offering and how much they value it. And so, like, my word of advice to everyone is like, get 10 customers. And like, it sounds disrespectful, but I'm like, bro, if you can't get 10 customers, you might not be an entrepreneur. That's like the proven ground. You know, getting 10 customers is is the proven ground for entrepreneurs. And we try to run from it and hide from it, but it's just, we just, it's just not good. You got to get, customers, paying customers. You can learn so much. Like Glenn, I'm telling you, even in this class, Introduction to Entrepreneurship, try to sell something for 10 people. You will learn more about business doing that than you will sitting in lectures and all that other stuff. The other thing I'll tell you is real G's move in silence. So it's funny how all these old sayings, like they really, you know, early bed, early to rise, right? They all ring true and they have real meaning. The problem with entrepreneurs is we put so much of our ego in our businesses, particularly veteran entrepreneurs. So we roll out an idea and we let everybody know, I'm starting a business. And we put it on LinkedIn. And Glenn, what do you say? Congratulations. It's so exciting. But guess what? You ain't got no paying customers. There may not be a market need. Da, da, da. Real G's move in silence. Don't tell anybody about what you're doing unless they're like close friends. But don't go public on social and all stuff. Just go get 10 customers. Validate the business model, get some revenue, then say, hey, I think I'm on to something. Now I'm going to tell everybody about it. And you're going to make all your mistakes behind the scenes instead of in public, forward facing. Right. So when I did Ironbound Media, because I had the lessons learned with Ironbound Boxing, because I had the lessons learned with the corporate boxing classes, I didn't tell anybody about Ironbound Media. I just went and got clients. And then a year later, I popped up on LinkedIn. It was like, hey, I started Ironbound Media, you know. Um, and I felt like I was better positioned. I had a team and stuff, et cetera. So I would say that. And the other thing, too, is you got to be around. What, what, what was the saying? If you want to go to the Super Bowl the fastest, recruit a team of players that's been there before. Business coaches, advisors, those rooms, that's where you need to be. Right. You don't want to be around the blind leading the blind. You need to kind of level up and put yourself in places where people have been 
where you're trying to go. I really appreciate you and admire you and, and love you and appreciate uh, the time on this. Yeah, man. Always a pleasure. Can't wait to get your adventure going. Appreciate you for spending this time with me today. Um, feel free to shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org or message me directly on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman um, after you hear this episode and let me know what your thoughts are. Make sure you subscribe to the newsletter as well at the link in the show notes. Um, if there's a topic you want me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, you can send me an email or message me on LinkedIn there as well. Until next time, everyone, I appreciate y'all. Peace, love, and have a great rest of your week.